So, Father, we just uh, thank you for this time. And we do thank you for the work that you're doing in Sherry's life. And we just pray you continue to lift her up, that you'd hold her in your hands. Lord, thank you that she's yours. Thank you that we call you Father and that you know our needs and even the, the, the hurts and the trials we go through. They're, they're hurts and trials that you feel. You're not above those things. And I, that blows me away that you care so much. And so I just pray you continue to bless her, that you would give her strength. And Lord, that you give the doctors wisdom to, uh, to deal with her, her cancer, Lord. And we just pray that you know, all the things that they're using would be um, just the right amount, that they wouldn't hurt her, but that the right amount that they'd get rid of the cancer and that uh, she'd be better. So Lord, we just love you and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. So as you open up your Bibles this morning, we're in Acts, and we're in chapter 9. And hopefully we'll finish up chapter 9 this morning. But just as an overview from last week, I wanted to share just a little bit because um, uh, basically what's happened is Paul the Apostle, everybody knows Paul the Apostle, he wrote most of the New Testament, or actually just under most of the New Testament, it wasn't quite half. Um, but he had spent three years after his conversion, and he, he took it and he went to the wilderness, he went to the desert of Arabia. And he set apart those three years to just learn about the Lord, to take time and to soak in who God is. Because he had before salvation, he thought he was earning his righteousness by living according to the law. And so because of those wrong ideas that he had about following God, he thought he could earn his righteousness. That's kind of a pivotal point. All of a sudden you realize that your righteousness, the law was never to make someone righteous. It was to prove that they weren't. It's like looking in a mirror in the morning. And if we look in the mirror in the morning and we see something we don't like and we don't do something about it, we may as well not look in the mirror. The mirror is supposed to show us that we spiritually had a problem. We were broken. We were messed up. And so the law should show us not that we are great, but that we need Jesus as a Savior. And so Paul hadn't realized this. He thought, if I just do this, 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 and this and do a checklist, then I could be righteous before God. So when God showed him that his own pursuit of righteousness had caused him to persecute God's followers, the Christians, and was causing him to be hate, hateful and violent. And God humbled him on the road. He realized, something's wrong about my thinking. I need to spend some time with Jesus and get to know this God that I claim to follow. That way, when I follow him, I'm not breathing out violence, but I'm, I'm learning of him and I can be used by him to spread peace and hope and joy. And so... He had spent that three years apart and then he went back to Damascus where he left and he went and started talking to the Jews about the faith that we know is in Jesus Christ. And as he did that, their response was they, they plotted to kill him because they thought, man, they've turned him over to their side and now uh, we got another guy that's against us and so we want to shut down Paul the Apostle. So the best thing to do is to kill him like we killed Jesus and that'll stop the message. Well, Paul, um, though he continued to boldly proclaim Jesus, um, the other Christians in the area said, you know, we need to, we need to save his life because they're going to take him out. We need to help him out of the city. And since they were watching at the gate for him to come in and go out as the only entrance and exit to the city, they devised a plan to save his life by lowering him through a hole in the wall to the outer part of the city in a large basket. And so he... He was able to escape, but when he went to Jerusalem after that to meet up with the apostles and got there and 
All of a sudden, the apostles were like, I don't know about this Paul. He, uh, he, was, he was persecuting us before. He had letters from the Sanhedrin to come and take our lives, to take us in, to prison. And so, do we really want to trust him? He's probably a spy, and he's like a double agent, and he's going to come in, act like our friends, and then he's going to turn on us like Judas did Jesus. So, I don't know if we need to trust him. So, Barnabas... Another one of the apostles comes along, and his name means son of encouragement or son of consolation. So he played the part of an encourager. He had seen what had happened in the life of Saul, and he, you know, he told the apostles, he's like, hey, this guy, is, he's, he's the real deal. You can trust him. God's changed his heart. He's humbled him. And so as he did that, uh, the apostles accepted him. And when they accepted him, Paul went about doing what he always did. He started contending for the faith. He started sharing Jesus with the Jews in Jerusalem. Well, because of this, yet again, they wanted to kill him. And as they wanted to kill him, the apostles basically, they were like, hey man, why don't you come with us down to Caesarea and we'll send you, we're going to give you a safe passage and then we're going to send you to Tarsus. Tarsus was his hometown. It was his people. There were Jewish people there, but there were also very many intellectuals. Um, there were people that were Greek scholars. You see, Tarsus, Saul's birthplace, was a well-known university city, uh, kind of like we have. You can go to Columbia, or you can go to Rolla, or you can go to Simo, all the different schools around here. Well, in, in Rome, in ancient Rome, there was these university cities where people would set apart time to go and learn philosophy and, and skills and so the very elite would go to these towns and they would learn and they were considered themselves very smart. And Paul was kind of cut from that same cloth. He was an intellectual. And so for him to go to these people, he would be able to speak their language. He would be able to share the faith in a reasonable way that would reach to them. And so they sent him there because he would have a different audience than just a bunch of Jewish people. And so Saul, a Jewish man, but God was calling him to share his faith with these Gentiles. Anybody that's not a Jew is known as a Gentile. Most of us in here are probably of Gentile descent. And so men and women who were not Jewish would be reached by Paul, and they would hear him. Now, at the same time, Saul kind of steps off the scene for a little while here in the book of Acts. We don't hear much from him until chapter 11, verse 19. And then the rest of the book basically will be his missionary journeys uh, throughout Judea, Samaria, and he's eventually going to go all the way to Rome through a, a series of crazy events that God is in control of. But what I want to take notice of about Saul is that though Saul's life was threatened, though his, uh, the persecution against him was very strong, it didn't deter him, it didn't stop him from still sharing Jesus. He had spent his life trying to obtain righteousness on his own. When he realized he couldn't do it on his own, he surrendered to Jesus, and from that point on, as hard as he ever went for the world, pursuing righteousness on his own, now he realized that he could rest in God's finished work, and he could spend all of his time telling other people they could rest in the same work if they would only just believe in Jesus and trust him for salvation. And so nothing in his life from that point on would stop him from pursuing that goal of telling everybody that he met, Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way for you to have peace and hope in your life. And that's, it's funny to me because I, I asked the question, why would he persevere towards a goal like that? Why would he continue to love people and share the gospel with them if they wanted to kill him? But I want to submit to you that it was his deep conviction that no one 
based on his experience, no one was beyond the love of God. No one was beyond God breaking through their hard heart. And he believed that because he knew his own heart was so hard that God had to knock him down to break through. If God broke through Paul's heart, he believed, then he can break through anybody's heart. And I truly believe that. If God broke through my, me, personally, my religious heart, my prideful self, then God can break through to anybody. And sometimes I forget that. But then God reminds me of all the stuff that I did before I knew him. And he goes, I forgave you. How can I not forgive that person? And then at that point, I realized, well, I need to show them grace. I need to love them the way that God's first loved me. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he who comes must believe first that he exists, that he is, And that second, he's the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And Paul was cut from that cloth. He was a man who diligently sought the Lord. And so he had had God's heart for other people. He cared. And he had diligently and zealously sought his religion before Christ. And now that God had opened his eyes to the truth, Saul had it shown to him that righteousness, the righteousness that he had always tried to pursue on his own, was found in one place, in the person of Christ. And so, as he put his faith, his trust in him, he dedicated his life to spreading the good news about him, especially, especially to his enemies. So in Acts chapter 9, verse 31, we see um, kind of a transitionary verse. We're going to see this next chapter as Peter is now going to come onto the scene and God's going to use him in different areas But before that, there's like this little parenthetical statement. It's like a transition verse in verse 31 that says, says then, keeping in mind that Paul's just been sent off to Tarsus, says, then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace, and they were edified, and they were walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. They were multiplied. Now, it's just one verse, but there's so much there because... It almost seems like because Paul is no longer in the Jewish area, they've sent him off to Tarsus, now there's peace. If you've ever thought of it, there's probably one person in your life, it's like, man, they just bring so much drama, so much excitement, that once they go off somewhere else, it's like, okay, now we can have some rest, now we can have some peace. But that's not what they're talking about here. Uh, What Luke is giving us is a little insight into the history of what was going on at that time in the world. You see, in the Roman um, society, the peace that they were experiencing was not only due to Saul's conversion, though Saul being converted to Christ took off some of the heat. He was no longer breathing out threats and threatening to take people to jail and have them put to death. That, that would bring some peace, right? That kind of turns down the heat a little bit. But at that time also, there was an emperor by the name of Tiberius. And Tiberius had just died. And so... As always happens in a kingdom, when one ruler passes off, there's always someone to succeed them, to come up behind them. And this uh, ruler was uh, the emperor by the name of Caligula. And when Caligula came onto the scene, he, his first order of business is he wanted to erect a statue of himself and place it in the temple in Jerusalem. Basically, he wanted to show them, hey, I'm your God now. And there were many times in the history of Rome where Roman people were forced to worship the emperor, to worship Caesar as if he was a god. Just like in the time of Egypt when the Pharaoh was considered to be a god and they would worship him as if he was one. So 
during that time, because of this emperor, Caligula, wanting to set up a statue, basically an idol of himself, in the temple, which would be a blasphemy. You don't worship other gods in Jewish culture, and you definitely don't worship uh, an emperor or a man in Jewish culture. So when he wants to set up a statue of himself in the temple, they, of course, at this time are persecuting Christians. They're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. We need to change our priority for a minute. Let's make sure this Caligula guy is not able to set up a, a, a statue of himself in the temple because they put all their efforts into making sure that that wasn't going to take place. All of a sudden, the Christians that were being persecuted get to lay back a little bit. They kind of the heat gets turned down on them. They all the efforts that were towards persecuting them are always backed off, or all of a sudden backed off, and they're going to worry about this Caligula guy for a minute. Now, this ungodly man Caligula, who's trying to do this ungodly thing, was in control. The Lord was in control of it because he used this man who wanted to basically set up an idol of himself to take the heat off of his people. He gave them a season of rest and peace. And it says there in verse 31, exactly that. The churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and they were edified. They were walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit they multiplied. They got a season of rest, a vacation, if you will. But what I want to talk about is, is the fact that sometimes we think about vacation or rest in a different way than the Lord does. It says that they were, um, had a season of peace and that they walked in the fear of the Lord and it says they were edified. Well, the peace that they experienced um, was due to the fact that God was in control and had taken the heat off. But Ephesians chapter 5 gives us an idea of what it means to rest in the Lord. So I'm going to turn there to Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5, um, verse 15, he's talking to them about how God has opened their eyes to the truth. And because he's opened their eyes to the truth, they're seeing the warfare that's waging on behind them, behind the scenes. And so he says, see then, in verse 15, that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. He says, therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and in hymns and in spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Now, oftentimes what we think of when we think of rest is kind of shutting off our brains and kind of just laying back and not really thinking at all. But what Paul writes to the, the church of Ephesus is he says, don't, he says, don't walk as fools, but as wise. Walk circumspectly. Well, I looked up that word because it's got too many syllables for me to know what it means. And the word circumspectly means diligently with all things in mind, walking soberly. Now, obviously it says there, don't be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. But though he is talking about alcohol there, he's also talking about walking soberly in the fact that sometimes we let the things in our life cloud what really matters. Sometimes the things that we entertain ourselves, it's not that they're bad in and of themselves, but if we're using them to avoid reality, Sometimes it's not a good thing. It can cause there to be danger. It's like the kid that's walking down the street with his headphones on 
and gets ready to turn right and cross the street without looking both ways. He's focused on what he's listening to, but he's not listening to what could kill him. You know, and sometimes the things in our lives that we crowd ourselves with, whether it's the news or whether it's a TV show or sports center or whether it's, you know, just wanting more sleep. Those things in and of themselves are not bad, but if we find our rest in those things, um, we've got to be careful because they can cause us to not pay attention to the things that are going on while we're doing them. Does that make sense? And so Paul is telling them, walk circumspectly. Be aware of what's going on around you. And then, as you're doing that, when you do have seasons of rest, it says there in verse 19, speak to one another in psalms and hymns and in spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if God's given you a season of rest like he's done these Christians, take advantage of it. Don't just click back the recliner, but take time to be built up. And the word there that he uses in Acts chapter 9 for built up, it says edified, is the same word that we use to describe a carpenter that's building a wall and he puts more wood in it to strengthen it for the day of trial, for the load it's going to bear. So to be edified means to take time to build up one another, to be built up, to take time with the Lord and learn from Him and be strengthened. We think of strengthening, we think that God's going to just give us more strength, but sometimes it means that we need to learn more to lean on Him, to be bolstered in our faith, to understand what His will is. And so to walk circumspectly is that idea. And then I have one more example in Hebrews chapter 4, where Paul, or whoever wrote Hebrews, I believe it's Paul, but there's lots of contention, but basically the, book, the writer of Hebrews wrote to them, and he gave them an Old Testament example, and he talked about rest. He says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9, he says, there, Therefore remains a rest for the people of God. Okay, I like rest. But what he says is, For he who has entered his rest, meaning God's rest, has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Talking about how God created for six days and on the seventh he rested, giving us an example to follow. But then it says, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Let us be diligent to enter into rest. Now think about this. We're, we're good at this. We're diligent to enter into rest. When vacation's getting ready to come, what do we do? We spend all our time getting ready to rest. So what God gives us is the ability to rest in Him and the way that we prepare to rest is that we learn from Him. We pray, we read His Word, and we fellowship with other Christians. We take the seasons where we're not so busy to be built back up, to be strengthened. And one of the ways that we can do that is to be diligent to enter that rest. And He warns us, He says, take these seasons of peace where you can be diligent to enter into rest because in the day of trial, if you're not prepared for it, you will fall according to the same example of disobedience. And in the book of Hebrews, he's talking about a particular example of the nation of Israel's disobedience. He's talking about when they were brought out of Egypt, they were brought into a land called the wilderness. And the wilderness was never supposed to be a place where they would stay. It was supposed to be a place that they would go through, a time of trial, a time of testing, 
where they would basically learn how to trust in the Lord as they were going towards the, the intended destination. Now, the intended destination was across the Jordan in a land called the land of Canaan. And many times over and over in Scripture, it refers to it as the land of promise, the land that God promised Abraham, Abraham for his descendants. And that land was a picture of abundant life. But in that land were giants, literally 13-foot-tall people. Now we have archaeological evidence of these people. They find their beds, and they're literally 13 feet tall, so the man could sleep in them. And they found their bones. These people were just ungodly tall. But they were big. They were strong. Out of these people come Goliath. David and Goliath, everybody knows that story. That man was literally 12 to 13 feet tall. So anyway, there were giants and there were fortified cities. These cities were surrounded by rock walls so that nobody seemingly could penetrate them. But what the Lord told them is he says, I'm going to deliver you from Egypt, which is a picture of sin. I'm going to deliver you from the world. I'm going to bring you through the wilderness, passing through the Red Sea, a picture of baptism. And then I'm going to give you abundant life in the land of Canaan. Of course, he's telling them this, but to them, all they see is giants and fortified cities. They're enemies. So if we go into that land, we're unarmed in our eyes. How are we going to survive? God's told us that that's the land of rest, but all I see is potential war. So he tells them this, and they're just supposed to trust him. But they don't. They're intellectuals, right? They can figure it out on their own. So as they're in the wilderness, they get 12 guys and they're going to send them into the land to spy it out. They didn't tell, God didn't tell them to do that. He said, go in. So they send 10 guy, 12 guys in. And as they do, 10 guys come back and say, we can't do it. It's too scary. And two guys, men of faith, say, look, the Lord told us we could take it. We could take it. I don't get it either, but let's go. Let's be obedient. He didn't tell us to do what we think is right. He told us to go. Well, they don't, and they end up spending what should have been a one or two week journey crossing over the wilderness. They spend 40 years there because of disbelief. And because of it, that entire generation that was 20 and above, they all died not ever entering into the land of rest. But the two men that did, Caleb and Joshua, they entered in with the youngins. And at 80 years old, when they finally had all died off, Joshua and Caleb led them into the land, and even though they were 80 years old, they still found rest in the land of Canaan. They were still spry and young, not because they were young, but because in the Lord they had found rest. They were waiting for the promise to be fulfilled. They had hope that could not be deferred, because if God promised it, He was going to bring them through it. So when they brought them into the land, they found rest, but that didn't mean that they didn't have to fight battles. And this life of faith that you and I are called to will be full of battles and trials. But what God wants to do is He wants to build you up to strengthen you so that He will bring you through this life and the ultimate destination is not here. It's heaven. He wants, us to, he wants to bring us to heaven pure, undefiled, maybe a couple scars, but to the face, face to face with our Savior, Jesus. He's procured us, He's paid for our sins, and He's going to seal us and bring us through. He's going to put his stamp of approval and bring us through basically unscathed, untattered by the world. And then, so basically, they're being given this time of rest. 
And so that was kind of a rabbit trail as I studied this week. And, and this rest is not a time to kick back the recliner necessarily. It's a time to be built up. And I wrote a little note. It was a note for myself. And if you guys get anything out of it, then, then I'm, I'm glad. But I said, we oftentimes find comfort and rest in recliners and sleep and vacations and families, etc. But if those things are ever taken from us, then where are we going to find our rest? If those things aren't there, then what? That's my question for myself. And, but the answer to me is that those things that can be taken from us in the blink of an eye, most of the people in the early church didn't have those things. But what they did have is found there in verse 31. They were comforted in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. They were multiplied. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our tribulation, not instead of having tribulation, but he comforts us while we're in it, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we first ourselves are comforted by God. And so not only can we experience peace and rest and comfort in our trials, but when someone else goes through it, then God's going to use us to be able to tell them, hey, I'm at the end of the tunnel, you're in the middle of it, you're going to make it, keep coming, follow me. I've been there before, and God's going to bring you through it. So, as we get from that verse, we get to the story of Peter. In verse um, 32, Peter comes onto the scene, and he's, uh, well, we'll just read it, verse 32. It says, Now it came to pass, as Peter went through all parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. There he found a certain man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise, make your bed. And then he arose immediately. So all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. So Aeneas is a picture, I believe, of our condition without Christ as our Savior. It's not that we're okay and we just need a boost. It's not before Christ, we were, we were kind of good and so... God kind of picked us up and gave us some bonus points. And now we're righteous. No. Aeneas, in our example here, is physically paralyzed without hope for his condition to change as he was kept in a bed because of his condition. Eight years. All those that surrounded him saw there's no hope of any change, no hope of healing. This was a case that was hopeless. Not able to get up, do anything else. And without Jesus, we are spiritually crippled. We're without hope. We can't pull ourselves up by our uh, prophetical bootstraps, proverbial bootstraps. We can't, we can't do it. We can't pick ourselves up and then be good. There's no hope for us. And this is man's condition. This man's condition, Aeneas, was so bad that there was no way on earth that he could be healed apart from a touch from God, a miracle. And so often, Jesus chose not those who were able to be helped by earthly means, but he chooses those who have no hope for healing apart from him. So then when it happens, everybody looks and sees that had to be God because there was no hope. There was no reason for that person to get any better than they were. And I love what Paul wrote in the book of Romans, chapter 5, verse 6. He says, When we were still without strength, in due time... 
Christ died for the ungodly. He died for the unsavable. He died for those that had no hope while we were without strength. And without strength there means feeble. That phrase that he used means feeble, impotent, and sick. We had no means by which to do it on our own. We couldn't save ourselves from the judgment that we deserved. And so this is a perfect example of where we were before Christ and how apart from God just touching us and healing us, there's no hope. Jesus chooses to heal the hopeless and those who obviously can't heal them, heal, be healed by any other means. So as this situation is obviously hopeless without a miracle of God, without God doing something that defies the laws of nature, that's the definition of a miracle. I've heard people say things that are miracles before that really aren't. Um, but when God does a miracle, it's something that couldn't be done by a natural means. It usually defies some sort of law like gravity. You know, I, I, Kelly told me one time that she was in a car wreck. And in her car wreck, the car flipped. It was up by that T. When you're coming down W, you can either keep going straight, go towards Bismarck, or you can go left, and you can go towards Pilot Knob. Well, she kept going straight because she was trying to get the Thanksgiving tournament, basketball season, right? And she was excited. She was going to go see her family there. And now that I've seen the Thanksgiving tournament, I get it. I want to be there too. I'm like, let's get, you know, but there was a slow car in front of her. So she kept going straight. And as she kept going straight, you know, with that little old, there's, it looks like there used to be like a white church building there. And on the left, it's like a gravel lot. And there's glass still in that parking lot. So don't drive through there. But as she was, as she was pulling through, she had, wasn't paying attention. She got a little bit off on the right side because there's no, you know, there's no shoulder. And as she got over there, her tire got in there. She got scared and she overcorrected. And as there was a car coming on, she overcorrected too much. She didn't hit the car, but she did flip and roll, and landed on the wheels. Well, in this car she was in, later she went back and looked at the car, and she was in the back seat by the end of the wreck. She, I don't think she had her seatbelt on. But the seat that she was sitting in had laid back so far that when it was all said and done and the roof was crushed, she was laying underneath it. She should have been dead. Had the seat stayed up and she'd have been in her spot, she would have been dead. It would have crushed her head. And so sometimes we think of miracles and we think of things that make sense to us. Like, okay, that could, that could happen. That one doesn't make any sense to me. She shouldn't have lived. She believes the Lord saved my life. Even though I was in a hurry, God saved my life anyway. You know, and so that's, to me, the definition of a miracle. When something happens outside of our understanding or the laws of physics. And so, but notice that how Peter speaks in verse 34 he doesn't say God is healing you. It's a process. But instead, Jesus the Messiah heals you now. This person that was paralyzed and bedridden. Imagine atrophy. You know what atrophy is? You lay in a bed for eight years. Your muscles, they deteriorate. Your body doesn't any longer send nutrients to them because it doesn't need them. It doesn't have to walk. And so as your blood vessels and all that stuff kind of weakens and the muscles stop working because if you don't use them, you lose them, right? Well, he says, Jesus the Messiah heals you. Take up your bed and walk. This isn't a process of, okay, I'm going to do some exercises and some physical therapy. This is stand up right now. And as Aeneas does this, everyone that sees it says there in verse um, 35, all who dwelt in Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. 
This is the result of a miracle of God. Peter, they didn't look at Peter and go, oh my gosh, look how great he is. They go, wow, that's the power of the Lord. And they turn their life to him. They surrender their lives to him. So that's one example. And then verse 36 says, At Joppa, this is a city close by, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. Now, I don't know why she would go by Tabitha. I mean, Dorcas is such a pretty name, right? Uh (laughs) I would go with Tabitha on this one. But it's translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. She wasn't good at talking about good works. She was good, and her works showed it. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. This was a cultural thing. They would wash the body, and then they would take her to an upper room. I don't know if it had to do with the smell or if it had to, I don't know what it, I didn't read that much in on the, the cultural note. But that's what they would do. They would wash the body out of respect for the dead and, then, and the family, and they would take her to the upper room. Then Peter arose and went, excuse me, verse 38, And since Lydda was near Joppa, where he just was, the disciples had heard that Peter was there. So word had already spread to the next town of what he was doing. And they sent two men to Peter imploring, begging him to, uh, to not delay in coming to them. In other words, hey, someone's died, get over here. We need the power of the Lord. We don't need some doctor, we need you. We need you to come and speak to us about Jesus and heal this woman. So that takes some faith, right? Someone's died and you're, you're going to the next town going, hey, we don't have any hope anyway. Will you come and like, can you pray over her and bring her back to life? I mean, this Jesus you claim to follow raised from the dead, so it would make sense that he has the power over death. And so that's what happens. They send these guys, and then Peter, it says, arose. He was ready to go, and he went with them. When he had come, they brought him to the upper room, and all the widows stood by him weeping. They were weeping over her. They were at a loss. They had lost this woman And they showed him the tunics and the garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter, he had put them all out. He knelt down and he prayed. Took all the people out of the room. He knelt down before her and he prayed to the Lord. And turning to the body after that, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And then he gave her his hand and he lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. Number Verse 42, And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. So it was, so it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon and Tanner. He had been given an opportunity to minister. He was in Lydda. No doubt he could have said, Hey, I'm kind of worn out. I've been walking all over the place. Uh, why don't you guys just... I'll pray here and you guys go back and maybe she'll be back alive. No, they wanted him there. And so he was ready as a minister of God. He knew that Jesus was a a, a God who left heaven to go to people. So if God's calling him to go to someone, he better get off his lazy hiney and go. So he went and he got to these people. And as, as he got there, what did they do? They were weeping. They were mourning. They were at a loss. They lost someone close to them. Not just any person though. Recognize that the people that are calling for Peter to come are widows. 
They didn't have any livelihood. Most women in those days didn't have a job. If they lost their husband, they lost their ability to live. Not life itself, but to be able to have food and clothing. They couldn't just go down to the Walmarts. They didn't have some sort of uh, financial plan that the, the government supports. They had, hopefully, people around them that would support them. And many widows would just have nobody to support them. So this woman had made a livelihood. I don't know if she had enough money or she had people that supported her. But she had made her lifestyle to take whatever she had to make it into clothing and to provide it for these ladies. She was ministering, ministering, as James talks about, to widows and orphans in their time of need. James wrote in that book, in, in the book of James, he said, True and undefiled religion is this, ministering to widows and orphans in their time of need. This is true and undefiled religion before God the Father, he said. So, there were many who could not provide for themselves, who depended on Dorcas, Tabitha we'll call her, for clothing and other practical help to just get by. These widows were weeping for this woman, not only because they lost a friend, but also because they would not be able to get by without the help that she had supplied. So when they lose their help, who did they seek? A follower of God. So then Peter sent everyone out of the room and he prayed for Dorcas to be revived. And she was. So let's take a minute and look at the result of her being restored. And as Aeneas was healed of her sickness. And in, in Lydda, Peter healed Aeneas. And in Joppa, he raised Dorcas from the dead. Miracles that led many to believe. So in verse 35, it said that all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon, who saw him heal Aeneas, turned to the Lord. And then verse 42 says, It became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. These miracles, these things that took place, they didn't make the man who did them famous, but they made the God who did them through the man famous. Now we see people on TV that have these miracle ministries. Anytime you see something, you can stop and watch it. But look who gets the glory. Is it a man or is it God? Because if it's man, it's, it's not God doing the miracles. It's not God doing the work. It's the enemy. And he's trying to deceive and draw people away from God and to worship some guy. Because Satan doesn't worry. He's not worried about whether somebody worships him or not. He just doesn't want them to worship God. And so, in the same way. But notice that these miracles bring glory to God, and because of that, people get saved. Notice that these miracles properly done did not lead to Peter's popularity, but instead to belief in God by those who witnessed the tangible results of the miracles that took place. The outcome of one physical healing basically results in many spiritual healings. Many turned to the Lord because they saw more than a crippled man walking, although that's an amazing thing. They saw more than a, a woman who was dead come to life. That's an amazing thing. But they saw evidence that Jesus is alive and his authority is over sickness and over death. The practical physical reality of his authority over these things points to the spiritual reality. If I can trust God with my physical healing... If I can trust God that he's able to raise someone from the dead, how much more can I trust him with my spiritual well-being, my salvation for eternity? And I say that because if you'll remember with me, and if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 1, excuse me, Mark chapter 2. He's doing this 
just as Jesus had done it. In Mark chapter 2, it says, As Jesus entered Capernaum, after some days it was heard that he was in the house. And immediately, as would happen many times, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, he doesn't say, your body's healed. He says, son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes and the Pharisees sitting there, reasoning in their hearts, thinking to themselves quietly, they're not saying this out loud, they're thinking, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Why is he claiming to be God? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to you, to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk? And then he gives them the reason why he said this. He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and walk, go to your house. And immediately he rose, took up the bed, he went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified who? God. They glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Jesus, in this instance in Mark, is doing the same thing that Peter's doing. Jesus forgave the man's sins, but to prove to them that he had authority to forgive sins, he healed the man's body. No one else was able to heal this paralytic man. No one else was able to heal Aeneas. No one else was able to raise someone, this man, or this, excuse me, uh, Tabitha from the dead. But the fact that he could do it points to the reality that Jesus, if he can raise someone from the dead, then he can forgive their sins, which to me is the more important truth. It's cool to see someone raised back from the dead, but I imagine sometimes, I wonder if Tabitha was just about ready to be in the presence of the Lord, and then all of a sudden, Peter prays and brought back to life. No, i got to come back. I was going to heaven. <laughs> Why would you pray me back? If I ever, if I, something ever happens to me and someone prays me back, I'm going to be a little upset. I was going to be in the presence of Jesus. Now, at the same time, for my wife's sake, go ahead and pray me back. You know, like, I don't know. It may not be a blessing to her and it may. I don't know. <laughs> but Jesus can forgive sins. And so... They're brought back to life. Here's something for us to consider this morning. If you are in Christ, if you're a Christian, you've been given ultimate freedom. You've been brought back from the dead, though you might not have been dead physically. What are you using this freedom for? I asked myself that question this week as I've pondered, you know, we're celebrating freedom that we have in this country. What do I use that freedom for? Are we walking circumspectly? Are you living your life soberly and resting in the fact that Jesus is your righteousness? And you being watchful and vigilant, or excuse me, are you being watchful and vigilant over your life and those lives that you're held accountable for in light of the fact that the days are evil, they're short, they'll be over in a blink, 
Each circumstance that you encounter in your life is an opportunity for you to either obey the Lord or give in and disobey. It's always there, the temptation. Ask the Lord, how am I doing in this? We know that true rest is found in trusting what you have already done for us, Lord. You know, he's, he's already done, for, done it for us. So let me ask you, are you seeking rest in him? Peter, as he sought rest in the Lord, look what God did in him. He used him to heal someone and for many to come to faith in him. He used him to bring someone, to pray someone back from the dead. But the fruit of that was that many were saved. And so I ask you, how are you using the freedom and the power that he's given us to? So let's pray. Father, we know that true rest is found in the person of Jesus. And we know that in light of what you've done, we seek your help in giving us the want to and the power to obey your word. Lord, help us to live like Saul did to share our faith in Jesus with everybody who will hear, whether they threaten our lives or whether they mock us or not. Help us to live like Peter, to speak words of life, to pray for people's healing, to pray for the sick, to pray for those that have gone on, Lord, to pray for the families that have had loss. But Lord, use these circumstances, these trials, these uh, ridiculous things, Lord, help them to be an opportunity for people to have their eyes open to the fact that eternity is waiting, awaiting them on the other side. Lord, we pray for salvation to happen in our families, uh, in the lives of our coworkers. Lord, we want people to find hope and rest and peace in you. And Lord, that's only found in the person of Jesus. And so Lord, thank you for the testimonies of Saul and Peter and how their lives, not only did they uh, proclaim Jesus, but their lifestyles mimicked his very actions. And so, Lord, uh, please work that out in our lives. Help us to be a reflection of your goodness, of your love. And, Lord, give us joy as we serve you. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning we're going to take communion. And as I play this song, and as we sing, um, you're welcome to come up and get the elements, and then we'll take communion together.